Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, South Sudan's leaders once again commit to forming a unity government. Will there finally be a breakthrough? And Al-Shabaab remains a threat to Somali stability. What explains its resilience? Plus, we have an in-depth discussion on migration in Sub-Saharan Africa. Should we embrace mobility and invest more in cities? So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. South Sudan President Salva Kiir and armed opposition leader Riek Machar say they will finally form a unity government by mid-February. South Sudan's government says it has already accepted the proposal by South Africa that there should be no more postponement of formation of a new government. Can the international community press both sides to follow through on this new commitment? Joining me to discuss South Sudan and other topics is Errol Yaboke, Deputy Director and Senior Fellow at CSIS's Prosperity and Development Project, Beza Tesfaye, a senior researcher at Mercy Corps, and Abdi Noor Istvan, author of the memoir, Call Me American. All right, I'm going to briefly update everyone because we haven't talked about South Sudan since March of 2018, a long time ago. Kira and Mashar have been blowing through all of the deadlines that they supposedly committed to, deadline after deadline, failing to resolve really the core issues to establish the new unity government. In May, they got a six-month extension, and then in November, they bought themselves another 100 days. Now, they have pledged again that they're going to form a unity government, but there's really a couple of really important sticking points. What are they going to do with the boundaries of South Sudan's existing 32 states? And how do they unify the government and rebel forces into a single military? Errol, you've spent some time in South Sudan. You've written about the humanitarian consequences here at CSIS. What's your sense of the challenges? Is there a way forward? I think the answer is maybe. Um, I, I think that it's great that they're talking, but my big fear is that we've seen this movie before, several times, in fact, and, and going back to even pre-independence. Riyak Machar and Salva Kiir have a history of focusing on consolidating their own power by themselves staying in office, but then also by rewarding their people. So some of the challenges that you mentioned about states and the creation of more states is is essentially a way of offering more patronage opportunities to to their people. How do you go backwards from that? How do you go backwards from that? And and how do you go backwards while you yourself are still putting yourself in power? Um, instead of creating the the inclusive institutions. There are incredible people in South Sudan. There are incredible people outside of South Sudan that want to go back and serve South Sudan, and there's no space for them. I highly recommend reading the Crisis Group's recent report on South Sudan. It's written by Alan Boswell, A Short Window to Resuscitate South Sudan's Ailing Peace Deal. A smart breakdown of the issues and really sensible recommendations on how to address the impasse As always, it seems to come down to the region, Sudan, Uganda, Kenya, Ethiopia. And Beza, I I know you know this region really well. There's no shortage of challenges, right? Sudan and Ethiopia are going through this really important transition. Kenya's got a whole realignment of its domestic politics. President Museveni is spending a lot of time thinking about our friend Bobby Wine. And so I don't know if they're the region is ready to impose the kind of penalties that they need to to push the two sides to truly uphold their commitments. What do you think? 
Yeah, I, I agree. I think there's a lot going on in the region right now, which might mean that South Sudan is going to be less of a, a priority, at least in the short term. Um, arguably, the, the two most critical players, especially in the revitalized peace agreement, have been Sudan and uh, Uganda. Um, Uganda has historically backed care almost at any cost, while um, you know Sudan has tried to play a more balanced and constructive role of late. But given the political and economic crisis in Sudan, it's unlikely that this is going to be a huge priority. Um, the same for other regional players like Ethiopia and Kenya, especially on e- Ethiopia right now. The big focus is on the political transition at home. So I, I think given the developments in the region, it's unlikely that um, there's going to be a lot of engagement in the peace process. Uh, and that was somewhat evident since 2018. Uh, there wasn't really an effort by the regional players to ensure that the necessary steps were taken so that this transitional government of unity could be formed. Um, and I think the most tragic part of all of this, of course, is the humanitarian crisis in uh, South Sudan, which continues to unfold. Um, there definitely has been a reduction in violence and some humanitarian access, but the situation is still pretty pretty awful. Um, there's still over six million people that are facing acute food insecurity, and uh, over 400,000 people have already lost their lives in the conflict. So um, what seems to be missing is really uh, a sort of a concerted and sustained effort on the diplomatic side to push these two leaders to find some kind of way forward. And we really haven't seen that. I think that's right. I'm so glad that you underscored really the stakes that are here in terms of the, the human suffering and um, you know the tragic trajectory of, of this country. I have been more impressed with the U.S. engagement in, in late uh, 2019 around this sanctions on both security forces, South Sudanese security forces, and on the foreign minister and on the cabinet minister. I think this is a course correction from the last go around when they extended where it seemed like there was a rush by the international community to sort of push people to the deadline. And it was just too a little too late. Yeah, I do think um, the U.S. is stepping up, but there are some additional things it can do. For example, there have been calls by some senators and civil society here for the U.S. to appoint a special envoy to South Sudan. You know, I think that's a really important missing piece in all of this. I couldn't agree more, especially, I mean, there's a whole debate that we won't have on this episode, maybe in another episode about when you need an envoy and when you don't. But when when it doesn't require, when it does need uh, that sort of shuttle diplomacy across the region. An envoy is really a good augment uh, and complement to the ambassador. Let's shift to Somalia. I have a hard time, honestly, keeping track uh, and seeing the big picture um, on what's happening on the security side. We had an episode where we talked about the political side, but there are still daily reports, almost daily, of attacks by Al-Shabaab. Al-Shabaab control almost half of Somalia with the barrel of a gun. On the other side, U.S. and partner forces attacking you know, extremist targets. And I don't think anyone would disagree that Somalia is an infinitely better place over the past decade when Shabab controlled most of South Central Somalia. But as the UN has said, like Shabab still remains a potent threat to regional peace 
It's still manufacturing homemade explosives. They've expanded their revenue sources. They continue to infiltrate government institutions. And I'm so excited that Abdi is here to share his experiences because, Abdi, you lived under the brutality of al-Shabaab's rule. And maybe the question that I'd love you to sort of help us think through is why is this group still resilient after a decade plus? How come they continue to remain a threat to Somali security? First of all, there's no question that, um, in fact, al-Shabaab is one of the uh, biggest and greatest threats existing at this moment um, in Somalia. As we, in fact, struggle uh, rising up and standing on our feet, where uh, to me, it, it, it seems more like the we're tired of the tribal uh, conflict. I think the reason that al-Shabaab is still there and is able to infiltrate into the most highly uh, secured areas of Mogadishu is mostly because they have a pretty good um, spying network. I grew up in a, during the Civil War with a bunch of warlords, militias and, uh, you know, gangs and all over the place, but they did not really care about the way people dress, uh, uh, music, uh, wedding parties, you know, um, um, uh, movies, uh, or what, whatever you want to do in your life. I mean, we have, we have always been Muslims, but the arrival of al-Shabaab had sort of like shown us, the Somalis, at, you know, at that time that, you know, oh my goodness, these people have a commitment. The way that they were able to sweep out the heavily armed warlords, you know, the most feared, uh, tribal leaders in town uh, within three to four weeks a big signal to all of us that you know if they can do this they can do anything else so they have not gone anywhere they're out there in town my mother lives in a locally displaced uh, camp on the outskirts of Mogadishu and my father who is still married to my mother also lives in a town called Beidawa which is uh, something like 250 miles outside of Mogadishu for 25 years, they have not been able to see each other. The government that's there now had done a lot of good work, um, bringing some sort of a, a, a peace in, in certain areas of Mogadishu, but uh, opening the road that connects this uh, Mogadishu to, to anywhere else in, in Somalia is uh, seems to be a, a huge challenge and that all the three, four governments that have came in the last 10 to 12 years have, have really not been able to at all uh, do that work. That Al-Shabaab now have presence out of the cities into small towns and villages that, uh, that they seem to control the opinions, you know, of, of people who live um, in these towns. You know, I mean, there are no other opportunities. So that also is another challenge where when young men realize that there aren't alternatives, there's not much to do out there for their lives. So um, it's it's pretty much easy to uh, for Al-Shabaab to, to definitely uh, reprogram and brainwash and have these young men join them with the promises of, uh, of course, power and all the good promises that uh, that come after, after, you know, someone someone dies. That's a really great place to... To broaden the conversation, because we're talking about a government that, uh, the Somali government that has a limited ability to project power, that relies on Amasom with, you know, under 20,000 troops and and then a very weak uh, Somali national army. Clearly, the international community has put a lot of money in there. But I think at, at the fundamental root of what you were saying, Abdi, is that they're able to exploit government absence and the fact that many young people feel like they have no options. Now, 
Beza and Errol have both done a lot of work on stabilization um, and conflict resolution. Is is there a different path that we should take? I mean, I think we've made progress here, but I feel like we're kind of been hitting a wall, particularly in the last couple of you know, five to seven years on these issues. Yeah, um, I, I agree with you. And what the biggest challenge really is the fact that the, the Somali government in Mogadishu still lacks a lot of um, legitimacy amongst its citizens. And Al-Shabaab has been really able to um, sort of usurp spaces where the government is seen as being deficient and, and unable to provide. And it sort of inserts itself in those voids and it acts as a service provider, right? It, it actually provides people with justice and uh, law and order and other public goods. And it does it in a way that is not necessarily ideal, but it, it's at least predictable and it's something. Um, and I think sort of changing this status quo is, is, is very, very challenging and it definitely takes a lot of time. Um, but it doesn't rest on just a military strategy. You know, it, it really has to do with the government itself pushing through reforms that will make it be seen as as more legitimate. Um, for example, uh, I, I think it's no secret, there's a very big problem with corruption in Somalia. Um, Somalia has ranked at the bottom of Transparency International's uh, Corruption Perceptions Index for, for many years now. And that has made the government pretty much dysfunctional and unable to provide. So these types of issues, I think, really have to be addressed in order to, to make sure that there are further improvements that lead to long-term stability. Errol? I, I couldn't agree more. And, and I think I wanted to latch on, Beza, to something that you said about um, it's, you know, when there is a lack of governance, these groups do have some resources. They certainly have organization and they have the ability to provide state-like functions when the state is absent. You see this with Islamic State in Syria. You see it probably with IS and Puntland. Um, they are filling a void. They're they're offering conflict mitigation services. They're picking up trash. They're they're performing what we commonly see as as the roles of the state. And so, Judd, I thought I would just offer three quick yeah, um, sort of lessons that that might be relevant in the in the Somali context. So the first builds on that. We have to offer and create opportunities um, for youth. We have to create alternatives uh, for them that are locally culturally appropriate. Um, just finding a salary job with the government is not the answer here. You have to figure out, you know, a lot of the literature on violent extremism and what causes people to join places like uh, Al-Shabaab are focused on on grievances. And so we have to find a way for, for youth to be able to address their grievances in a locally, culturally appropriate way. Secondly, um, we have to find a way to strengthen and support whatever locally legitimate institutions that there are that are not Shabab. And so this... Um, this could come in the form of civil society. This could come in the form of, you know, youth organizations, community organizations, something that provides an alternative to the more radical Shabab style. And then lastly, we have to incorporate women's leadership into peacebuilding efforts. Um, this is something we know without a doubt. There's no question about the data globally that when women are involved in peace processes at the actually not just involved, but have a seat at the table, those processes are longer lasting and, and more durable. Those are great. Abdi, let me ask you to to react to Errol's three points. And then I'd love to get your thoughts on a conversation that happens here a lot in D.C. around 
is there room for some negotiation with Al-Shabaab? Is that a viable alternative? And I, I'll leave you to just to answer whether you think it's the organization all the way to the top or, or mid-level and lower, but someone who's, who's experienced firsthand their brutality, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. All right. Well, first of all, I would like to say great points. One thing else that's really so amazing is that this government has realized that uh, somehow the best way to fight back uh, Al-Shabaab is, is counter-narrative, you know, where um, they have uh, connected with the uh, uh, Somali Islamic leaders, uh, the, the ones that are not Al-Shabaab. They spread the word peacefully and, and talk more about uh, leadership under Islam uh, and, and also um, into integrating with, with other faiths and, and other opinions, which I think is really amazing. I think there, there are leaders from Al-Shabaab who have either defected or were able to somehow have conversation with a previous government. And I truly believe that that door is still open, still let Al-Shabaab uh, come join them. Um, and that they will provide safety and uh, and also with promises of working under the intelligence. Um, and some of them are already doing that. I also think it's um, I think it's important to note that these extremist groups are not uniformly extremist, both at any one given a period of time, but also over time. I mean, you have to look to the Taliban in Afghanistan today looks very different than it did 20 years ago. Uh, and I would imagine that Shabab is is the same. And, and so you probably have windows of opportunity, like Abdi said, to, to access the sort of less extremist elements there and maybe use that as a window of opportunity. I totally agree. I think especially at the lower ranks, a lot of people that might join, uh, not they do it not necessarily for ideological reasons, but maybe for for economic or, or other self-interested uh, purposes. So I think at the bottom, there have been discussions about granting amnesty to al-Shabaab fighters um, or affiliates. And I, I think that kind of recommendation should be given some um, credence and, and support. So maybe this is mixed metaphors, but keep the door open, look for windows of opportunity. And, uh, and, and and recognize it, both the openness uh, on the side of Shabab and the willingness of the international community support will evolve depending on the circumstances. All right, I'd like to shift to our paradigm for today, which is on migration. Back in June, I had uh, I picked up Abdi's incredible book, Call Me American, and I knew I had to have him on the podcast. I think... Abdi, just to put you on the spot, it's an incredible story of your perseverance, your resourcefulness, and really personal about your family. And I think for this, the point of the conversation today is what are the push and pull factors that drive migration? So I thought maybe, Abdi, you could tell us a little bit about that journey and why you ultimately moved from Somalia to Kenya and then to the United States. And since there's been some really incredible news about your brother recently, if you wanted to share that as well. Right. Well, I think, first of all, I have... I had no choice in, in Somalia, you know, things, uh, civil war started when I was five, and then there was this whole, not only the civil war, but also the drought that came to Somalia in 1992, and, uh, you know, that was, uh, that, that let millions of, of kids of my age starve, and I, that way I lost one of my sisters. That had not really weakened me, it had made me more stronger as I, uh, as I grew older and I became the provider of my family. Uh, my brother and I teamed up where we could go to the, to the only place that we could get uh, clean water uh, to drink and we would bring it home and then uh, 
you know, and then I was a happy kid. I, I talk about the uh, uh, the stories that you might not be able to to see on on Black Hawk Down or Captain Phillips. The the true stories of of a, of a family in Mogadishu. The joy, the sadness, the sorrow, the hopelessness, the hope, the you know all the all the combination of things. But uh, I think my motivation started at the movie theater. As I looked at the screen, there's there's a life out there. You know, there's something going on out there that that's more different, that, that's more promising uh, than what I had. And uh, I thought, you know what, let me just see uh, step one, get the language. And then from there, uh, I was not quite sure where it would go. Um, but my life had cracked open like an egg, I think, when Paul Salopek, this American journalist, uh, was in Mogadishu when Ethiopian army was fighting al-Shabaab street to street. And, you know, I I was homeless. I didn't have a place to live and I didn't have shoes on, but I was walking around on this dusty street and to see these people taking pictures, uh, journalists. And I had a conversation with Paul that day and uh, he had documented the whole story on uh, the newspaper he worked for at the time, the Atlantic, uh, you know, where he says Abdi had used Hollywood slangs to continue the conversation with me. And I was doing, first of all, to in fact, show my frustration and anger of what was going on in Mogadishu, uh, as well as practice my English to see if I am really able to communicate to someone who is a native English speaker. Um, and that was, to me, like a success. I sort of like passed that test uh, to say, if Paul can understand my story, I can, the world can understand my story. And then I went ahead and started recording my stories. So I left because there were not choice, many choices left. I had almost got recruited into, into Al-Shabaab. Um, one time they surrounded the mosque where I prayed Friday prayers and they asked for my name and they had to register every single young man. Um, at the time I was 23 or 24, uh, uh, you know, and uh, that, that was a perfect uh, age and height um, that, that they wanted. So I had to leave. Kenya had closed its, uh, uh, it couldn't allow any air, uh, airplanes coming from Somalia due to the threats of al-Shabaab uh, infiltrating, and Kenya just sent its own troops into Somalia. So I, I got into Uganda, and uh, you know I remained in the, in the, in the, in the airport for hours um, until I was uh, uh, bailed out, and I was given 24 hours to leave Uganda. So in this case, I smuggled myself into Kenya and ended up coming to Nairobi, where my brother and I lived in one apartment with the refugee document, but we were not allowed to be in a city with refugee papers. So in this case, we could not work, we could not go to school. So um, yeah, it was uh, it was hustling. I sold hats and socks and scarves and whatever I could, sticking it into the buses, you know, asking people to buy. And when the cops came, we run the other way. And some, you know, most most of the times we got caught and handcuffed, and we had to pay bribes and. You know, it was it, it was um, not as very dangerous as Somalia, but it was being very cautious and alert twenty four seven, even at nights when you know my brother and I were in the room reading books or watching movies, giving ourselves some entertainment, some hope, some uh, optimism. Um, but things got bad. September two thousand thirteen, when Al Shabaab attacked in Nairobi, uh, they bombed. Uh, the mall, and mall. Yeah. they killed over 70 people. And this was when the Kenyan government and the police were unhappy with the refugees. So we were asked to 
to, to go to the camps uh, uh, in the, in the uh, no, uh, northeastern Kenya or uh, uh, go back to Somalia. Um, and, and unfortunately, this was also a time when I realized I won the U.S. lottery. Abi, let me just stop you to clarify for our audience really quickly. You didn't win like the, you know, the the lottery, the the big ball lottery. You won the visa lottery, uh, which um, allows people uh, to get a visa to come to the U.S. Yeah, this is an annual co- congressionally approved uh, uh, diversity program, uh, diversity lottery program. Yes, it's not the money. It's, um, I think, on average... 15 to 17 million people from all over the world can apply to this program every October. And I was, at the, of course, the perfect person uh, for, this, uh, for this kind of a, uh, of a lottery. Otherwise, I would, I would have not been able to, uh, to migrate to the United States. Uh, refugee program takes forever. And um, uh, I met the Somalis who registered their names and, 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 and processed their cases in the 90s. And they were still waiting uh, for a resettlement to the United States. So here I was, I arrived in 2011, and how in the world would my refugee program get ahead of these people who have been here in the 90s? It's such a remarkable uh, story of of just, your, as I said, your perseverance and resourcefulness and just the good fortune. And I, I do want to end on at the end of the episode with the story of your brother, because I think it's another interesting parallel. But let me bring Errol and Beza back into the conversation because Errol wrote a piece recently on forced migration was part of a task force you did. And I, I suspect there are things that Abi has said that has resonated with you. And what were some of the findings of the report and does it how does it match with Abdi's own experience? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that uh, I found myself sort of nodding when, when I was listening to Abdi talking because much of that story really resonates with across the 10 countries that we visited as part of this study that we did uh, recently. And, and I think that's a sad thing, that, that this is not a unique situation. I think the resilience of someone like Abdi and his brother and his entire family is also not unique amongst the forcibly displaced. Um, this is a really resilient, pretty remarkable group of people. You're getting lots of new readers for your excellent book, uh, Abdi. I was also, as a longtime fan of Into Africa, struck by the the um, how cultural influenced Abdi and and kind of where his story starts in the movie theater is really evocative of some of the themes that you, Judd, like to to showcase on your your podcast. And so there's a lot there that I just found myself nodding to. But very quickly, uh, we did the study on forced migration. And there's a couple of things that I, I just wanted to put on the table as sort of what do we do about this and how do we think about this? And, and the first one is I found over and over in my research that we need to find ways to regularize and normalize the pathway of people that are that are moving anyways, and especially people that are forced to move like Abdi. And so we need to find ways to normalize their existence in transit. You know, the fact that Abdi couldn't work in Nairobi is troublesome. Uh, also not unique to, to Nairobi. That's not a knock on, on Nairobi. Um, and, and if we don't, then, then people like Abdi and the, and the tens of millions of displaced around the world are going to find ways of moving and for their sake and for everybody's security, wouldn't it be nice if those were regular and safe? 
The, the other thing I'll say is that we need to figure out a way of diversifying the stakeholder group beyond just international organizations and governments. Um, the private sector should be motivated and incentivized to engage responsibly in ways that benefit not only the people that they're trying to benefit, but also their own bottom line. And I mean, the Abdis of the world are are not only resilient, a lot of them are entrepreneurs. A lot of them come with ideas and energy that, that um, the private sector can really benefit from. Well, the point that you, you raised about mobility is something that I think uh, Beza and I have been bonding over over the last year, um, you know, the particularly about legitimizing mobility and, and being very mindful about criminalizing migration. And I think we share a view, correct me if I'm wrong, that, you know, there's some of the migration programming that is so focused on deterrence or is even sort of misguided in the focus on agricultural development misses some of the big trends on the continent, which is urbanization and the fact that many people are leaving places where they can no longer make a living or they are under threat and they're trying to go to other places in sub-Saharan Africa, right? Two-thirds of all migration is actually um, intra-African. So, Beza, can you talk a little bit about some of the Mercy Corps research that has been really fascinating and interesting? Yeah. Um, one of the first uh, studies that we did on this was looking at um, some of our programs, one in um, Afghanistan and one in Somalia, actually. And uh, these are typical economic development programs, um, and, and they do things like they provide young people with vocational training, education, um, and we were trying to understand if those programs had any kind of impact on swaying people's decisions or intentions around migration, uh, because this is a very common assumption underlying migration programs, that if you give people access to economic opportunities or employment in their home country, then they're less likely to, to migrate. Um, in fact, when we did this research, we found that those programs had zero impact on um, migration. And uh, I mean, at first it was a bit of a difficult story for us to tell, um, but I think it really forced us to reevaluate our, our thinking around migration and development. Um, and uh, there's this kind of common assumption amongst international development donors and development actors that um, migration is a, re a result of uh, failed development, right? that if we sort of invest in developing communities and countries, people are going to be less likely to migrate. Um, and that's not the case. Uh, there's a lot of research showing that as countries become more developed, as their populations gain more wealth, that immigration actually increases before it, it decreases after a certain GDP threshold. So this, um, I think, was sort of uh, sort of an aha moment for us, um, and it forced us to sort of reevaluate the way we were approaching this. Um, and this is sort of the the approach that we're taking now with our programming uh, and what we're trying to do in Niger is rather than sort of trying to prevent people from migrating, we want to um, support them if they make the decision to migrate by sort of enhancing their skills, their providing them with information and the tools that they need to make their migration experience more productive um, and safe. So in Niger, that's where we are and, and we hope to, to push forward on that front. I think it's really important research, so I'm looking forward to seeing it as it develops. One of the things that you and I have talked about is about cities, um, how Sub-Saharan Africa will be 50% urban by 2030, uh, Nigeria is going to be 70% urban by 2050. 
Um, and, and many people are, are moving to the cities. I think that it's sort of, um, you know, I, I don't think you can make farming sexy as the New York Times had an article last year about. Uh, and, and, and I think we do need to embrace that we need to be putting a lot more effort in making cities sustainable and welcoming. And I think holding African countries to account for all the protocols they've already signed on, whether it's on on, on travel and protocols of free movement. Uh, but in Errol, in the report, you have a great section about cities. What what do you say? Cities are the new leaders. What is What do you mean? Well, first of all, I think there are some in American country music that would vehemently disagree with the lack of sexiness uh, <laughs> in, in farming and, and particularly tractors, but that's uh, neither here nor there. No, look, I, I think that we should have spent a lot more time and energy in our report on forced migration on cities. Um, if you look at just refugees, there's over 25 million uh, forcibly displaced refugees around the world. And 60% of them live in cities. For internally displaced people, that is much likely to be much higher. Um, That's where the jobs are. That's where the services are. That's where the opportunities are. Um, And really, nobody wants to live in a camp. Nobody gets up in the morning and says, oh, I really want to live in a refugee camp um, for as a longer term solution. However, as protracted displacement becomes the new normal, as people are not only force from home, but stay away from home. Uh, and, and very few people, by the way, for the record, get the opportunity that Abdi got to come and get resettled in a third country. A vast majority of people stay in Africa or stay not even in Africa, but in their country of first asylum. And so I think that we need to be thinking about cities and and the challenges of urbanization, they can't be divorced from the forced displacement and and migration conversation. Um, And and leaders know that throughout the course of our research, for example, the mayor of Dallas, mayor of Dallas sat there and and told me, he said, I don't have time to politicize migration and, and refugees. He said, I want to spend time harnessing their contributions to my my communities. And I think that's really powerful. Abdi, your brother's challenges migrating is particularly illustrative of the challenges of our current migration system. And then I'm going to leave Beza with the last word. If there's any sort of policy recommendations that she or Mercy Corps are thinking about to complement some of Errol's. So, Abdi, can you tell us a little about the remarkable uh, journey your brother has had and the great news that you just found out? Um, so my brother had been in, in Kenya um, uh, as a refugee more more than he was in his own native country. Um, so that really means he has been in Kenya way longer than he had, um, he could have imagined, you know, uh, with refugee status. Um, so with all hopes to get my brother to the United States, all exhausted, um, and this is a word uh, I quote from an email the State Department sent to my brother um, right after the election of 2016, um, and I'm not 100% sure if this is related to the travel ban, um, or anything else, but he was permanently um, denied an entry in the United States. And that is when, um, uh, you know, myself as, as his young brother, um, I realized, nope, I'm not going to give up. You know, we, we have to, 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 to do something uh, because my brother does not deserve uh, a, a denial and then um, for him to, to be stranded in, in Kenya for the rest of his life. But now that he's a father, and a husband of three little children who were born in Kenya but have no rights 
to 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 the other children uh, uh, of, of the Kenyan uh, nationalities. Uh, so we teamed up um, and we communicated with organizations and, um, uh, and, 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 and certain individuals in, in, in Canada. Um, and it took about uh, uh, two years to go back and forth and put uh, efforts together and think about things and raise some funds and all that. And eventually he was able to, uh, to land on the 17th this month, um, peacefully uh, migrated to uh, to Toronto as I drove across, you know, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, uh, and New York, the thing that was going on in my mind is, you know, this is what freedom looks like. Um, this is what, this is what, 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 what we have always been thinking about. And I was on his phone, on the phone with him and saying like, can you imagine this? I'm driving all this distance. And then we, we went back and talked about, uh, the dangerous, uh, smuggling, uh, that I, that, that happened when I crossed into, um, you know, from Uganda to Kenya, and then the dangers of not being able to visit the next neighborhood in Somalia, and also, of course, not being able to go anywhere um, in Kenya itself. You could have been arrested or deported. Um, so this freedom that we have is something that he and I truly appreciate. And, you know, our, um, I would say, 15-minute hag that we did when I arrived in Toronto to meet him um, was just... Uh, an emotion, tears, and uh, all things that you can imagine. We need uh, people to have the freedom to migrate uh, wherever they prefer. Um, and most importantly, people who face threats and dangers must have an access to go uh, and find safety and peace um, and uh, access to opportunities and things that they do for themselves. So we're all excited that we're here in North America. Well, congratulations. I, we hope that uh, the you you're able to bring your mother over as well and you know i guess uh, i hope as an american that that we reform our immigration laws so that um it's not just canada that's opening its doors but it's our country which you know my family and many of people in this room's families are here because of that beza any like last thoughts from mercy corps and you about what we should be thinking about both in mm -hmm. research and policy well, I think uh, in policy, especially in the continent in Africa, there are opportunities to support productive migration. So you have uh, regional communities like ECOWAS that already exists. Um, and so sort of building on top of those systems and um, through our development aid and our development programs, working with people that are planning to migrate and again, making sure that they have the skills, the information and generally the tools that they need to make their migration experience more productive and safe is one thing we can do. Um, I think that's really, you know, the the most important um, the most important contribution that development can make instead of focusing on on the prevention is actually trying to to increase the benefits of migration and minimize some of the risks that are involved with it. That's great. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. We will have links to Abdi's book. We will have links to the forced migration paper from Errol. Uh, Beza will give us some good recommendations from Mercy Corps. Those will all be in our show notes. And uh, we look forward to seeing everyone in two weeks. Thanks. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks.